you know, where is Logan? You know, what is his life like now? What is he doing? Does he remember me? Does he think about me? You know, um, what's been told to him? You know, those things caught my mind. Because there had been a few sightings, you know, people come in, oh, I saw him here, I saw him there. It's not uncommon at all to, you know, have people show up and just absolutely positive they've seen somebody. We've got this um, boy that's gone missing. Only, I mean, only God knows where he's at. Like, he could be anywhere. It's a case that has haunted a northwest Oklahoma town for more than 16 years. The city of Woodward was founded in the late 18th century on the Sagebrush Prairie along the North Canadian River. It's a windswept gateway to the Oklahoma Panhandle where truckers can be seen hauling their goods along the highway. Its main street is lined with brick buildings and peppered with boutiques, cafes, and shops. It is the largest city in a nine-county area spanning millions of acres. The population there rises and falls with the jobs available in oil and gas production. But in 2002, Woodward had settled into a town of about 12,000 people. The people themselves, I mean, they're just, you know, very, very tough-minded people. Uh, they're kids of caring community. You know, you, this isn't an easy country in this part of Oklahoma to make a living. And, you know, there's people that they work hard and try to take care of each other. The voice you heard was that of Johnny McMahon, managing editor of the Woodward News. McMahon is a longtime journalist who was at the newspaper in 2002. From that post, he got an up-close view of the kinds of issues that small towns all across America face. In Woodward that year, those issues included a snowstorm and a school bond measure to vote on. Residents fought over a new development with officials saying Woodward could get a new Brahms ice cream store, an Oklahoma staple founded in the Sooner State. It was a town where McMahon's newspaper still published school lunch menus. A movie theater showed family-friendly films. In 2002, the people of Woodward celebrated the return of a colonel in the Marine Corps Reserves who just finished a six-month tour in Afghanistan. But, like a lot of small towns across America, not everything was right in Woodward. In early June that year, a woman and her two little boys moved to town. They came from Tulsa. Catherine Rutan was 27 years old. Logan, her oldest son, was six years old. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and a mischievous grin. He also had a four-year-old brother named Justin. Not much was known about the small family. Not much was known about the small family until one hot day in July. On that day, the family became the talk of the town. Logan, one of Catherine's sons, had disappeared. I missed my son. I want him back. And if anybody knows anything, let us know. I want my son. I want Logan back. From NewsOK.com and The Oklahoman, I'm Josh Delaney. You're listening to Looking for Logan Tucker, Part 1. 
nobody knows. They made up their mind from the beginning, and it, it was not really a search to find, locate him. Do you understand what I mean by that? They weren't looking for a live child. I don't know if you've been to Woodward County, but it's pretty tough. Uh, uh, what do you call it? topography or terrain or whatever you want to call it? As I was driving, I would always think, man, you could just drop him yeah. out there. I think people were on the lookout for a body anywhere they went on a county road. If they went fishing, if they went to a river, wherever in this area, I think people were looking for evidence of a shallow grave or uh, a tarp-wrapped body uh, for months, maybe even up to a year after that. Nobody knows. Like It's just the not knowing that is hard. On July 10, 2002, the Woodward News ran a front-page story with a two-word headline, Boy Missing. In fact, Logan had been missing from his Texas Avenue home for more than two weeks. When news of Logan's disappearance spread across Oklahoma, reporters descended on Woodward. They were looking for answers from authorities, from residents, from his mother, Catherine. You heard her voice earlier from footage captured at the time by KOCO-TV News, based in Oklahoma City. I miss my son. I want him back. And if anybody knows anything, let us know. I want my son. I want Logan back. When news of Logan's disappearance hit the homes, coffee shops, and bars of Woodward, the town went into a frenzy. And once the story came out, uh, there's people volunteering to do searches and things like that. Um, the sheriff's office organized one search in July, and there were probably three or four hundred people that came from all over the place to to search Woodward County. They were on horseback, uh, high ATVs, just on foot, anything. And then later that same night, I don't remember the day exactly, but that same night they had a foot search through Boiling, Boiling Spring State Park with several hundred, hundred people just kind of walking the park, arm arm's length away just to see if they could find something. So and then uh, there was a lot of tips, and there's I think there were a few searches after that, off and on. So there was a lot of interest in the community in trying to find out what happened. So I don't think it's that much different from a lot of other places. I mean, think you, when you just the people care and they want to try and find out what happened to a missing boy, and if they found the body, to give him a proper burial. The people of Woodward weren't the only ones who had been left in the dark about Logan's whereabouts. Catherine, Logan's mother, had been calling her adoptive parents in Florida and begging them to take the boy off her hands. He was too hard to handle, she told them. When her parents hadn't heard from Logan in a couple of weeks, they became concerned. On July 7th, three days before the public found out Logan was gone, they requested a welfare check on the boy. Sheriff Sergeant Sean Barnett was closing a call around 3.30 p.m. 
That's when he and Deputy Chad Standifer were dispatched to 510 Texas Avenue in Woodward. The small white house with a concrete porch and a carport on the side sat on a tiny patch just off Main Street. Uh, the sheriff's office had received a call from Mickey Cathcart in reference to his six-year-old nephew, Logan Tucker, requesting a welfare check. Uh, stated he hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks. Mickey Cathcart was one of Catherine's brothers. Catherine and Mickey were adopted when they were kids. It was their adoptive parents who asked Mickey to call the sheriff's office about Logan. Catherine has gone by several last names in her life. Rutan, Cathcart, Blanton, Tucker, Goggler. Barnett and Standifer had no idea what they were getting into. Catherine was sitting in the front room with her roommate when the sheriffs pulled up in a marked car. When she saw the car, Catherine told her roommate to tell them she wasn't home, and she hid in her bedroom. As we approached the residence, uh, there was a small boy outside. Uh, asked him his name, he said he was Justin. Uh, as we approached the porch, a female came out, asked her if her name was Katie Googler. Uh, she said she wasn't, but Katie was in the house. Barnett learned that Justin was Catherine's other son, Logan's little brother. After she went inside to get uh, the second female and brought her out to us. She was shaky, nervous. She informed us that her brother, Brian, had taken Logan on a camping trip. Pennsylvania, Vermont, I believe, in that area. She said that she'd been having some disciplinary problems with Logan. Uh, and that she had thought maybe her brother could help take care of some of those issues. Brian was also Catherine and Mickey's brother. But when he was young, he was adopted by another family. Barnett and Standifer asked Catherine for Brian's phone number. Catherine told them she didn't have any phone numbers for him and no way of contacting him. And she hadn't spoken with Logan since he left with Brian. It was strange that a mother would let her young son travel back east and not have an emergency contact for him. And as the conversation wore on, Catherine's story changed. She said that they weren't actually camping, that Brian was a salesman, I believe for WOW Industries. Uh, they were probably staying in a pickup or motels. She didn't want her adoptive parents to know where Logan was at. Catherine told the authorities that she was waiting for Logan to return so that he could be interviewed by a woman at the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. She had been telling people that Logan was troubled. Barnett and Standifer took the information down and returned to the sheriff's office. Uh, as we were coming back, uh, we'd received another call from Mickey Cathcart. Uh, Deputy Standifer spoke with him on the phone, asked him if he might know a phone number of getting a hold of a Brian, and he provided us with a work number and a, maybe a cell number, if I remember right. Uh, we were able to reach his voicemails. Uh, we, he did, Deputy Standifer did leave a message. Brian returned the phone message the following day. Barnett and Standifer returned to Catherine's house. This time, they were joined by Undersheriff Monty Clem. When they arrived, Catherine played them a message on her answering machine. This is for Katie and... This is for her brother. She has Logan. He's all right. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. The message made no sense. Was this supposed to be an alibi? 
Catherine first told the authorities that Logan was camping with Brian. Then she told them Logan was on a trip with Brian, who was a traveling salesman of cleaning products. Now she played a phone message from a man saying, quote, She has Logan. Barnett was suspicious. The message left was broke up, hesitant, as if they had to think of what they were saying instead of just leaving a message. Then, the explanation grew stranger. She said that was her brother, Brian. Once again, Catherine told the sheriff that she did not have a phone number for her brother, Brian. What Catherine didn't know was, the sheriffs had already been speaking with him. In front of Catherine, Sheriff's Captain Monty Clem picked up the house phone and called Brian himself. Brian again denied having Logan. Clem then handed the phone to Catherine. He could hear Brian screaming at her. He was angry that she had told people Logan was with him. When Clem tried to take the phone back from Catherine, she pulled it away from him. Clem read Catherine her rights, and he told her she was not under arrest. He asked her to return with him to the sheriff's office, and she agreed. At the sheriff's office, Clem started taking down background information on her, but then he received a call from investigators back at the house on Texas Avenue. As I entered the basement, uh, there was an older bed without any bedding, a pillow without any covering. Uh, from remember I told on the left side, there was a bookcase uh, or some wood shelves. Uh, there was a white bucket in the floor, uh, maybe some other things in the, in the basement. Um, on the pillow, uh, the bed, the mattress, and then on the floor just directly below it, it appeared to be uh, uh, some orange waxy substance, possibly from a candle. Uh, as I went through the, the basement itself, um, I, there was, I looked in the uh, five-gallon bucket or whatever size bucket it was. Um, I noticed a wad of masking tape. Uh, I bent over just to kind of look at the contents on that tape. I could see what appeared to be the same type of orange uh, waxy substance that was on the bed and the floor. He also noticed something else on the tape. Uh, it appeared to be some sort of a whitish, blondish, maybe hair. It was the same color as Logan's hair. Then, Barnett noticed something on the shelves. Uh, there was a roll of masking tape, uh, which matched the width of the wad of tape that was in the bucket. Uh, appeared to be uh, possibly of the same of the same roll. Back at the sheriff's office, Clem asked Catherine about the tape. She said Logan and his brother Justin and some neighborhood boys had been in the basement during a tornado warning, and they had been playing with the tape and had gotten it all over themselves, and she had unwound it and left it in the basement. Toward the end of his interview with Catherine, Clem told her Justin had been taken into protective custody. Stone-faced, Catherine looked as though they were talking about the weather. She showed no emotion. Clem obtained Catherine's consent to search her vehicle, and... He told her that if she didn't return to the sheriff's office the following morning to file a kidnapping report or a missing child report, he would treat the case as a homicide. When Clem arrived at Catherine's house, he searched her car. In the trunk, he found quarter-inch nylon rope, some drain cleaner, and a large amount of plastic. Catherine did not return to the sheriff's office the next day. She did not file a kidnapping report she did not file a missing child report. Within days, Clem met Catherine at her house again. He told her, Logan deserves better than this. Clem registered Logan with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 
a photo of Logan was posted on the center's website. The boy wore a navy and gray shirt with USA on the front in white letters and a red collar. Andy wore that familiar grin. Clem also registered Logan with the Vanished Children Alliance, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and the FBI. When the residents of Woodward searched for Logan, Catherine never joined them. She didn't visit the search sites to offer a thank you or to offer food and water. In similar cases, it isn't unusual for those closest to the victim to become a suspect. Authorities hadn't named Catherine as a suspect, but McMahon says the people of Woodward wondered. Rumors swirled. Suspicions hardened. Except for maybe your attorney, I think everybody pretty much believed that she had done something to him. In July of 2002, about a month after Logan went missing, three women used methanol to set fire to Catherine's car, which was parked by her lawyer's office on Main Street in Woodward. The car had been placed in her lawyer's custody after it was examined for evidence by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. The women were given suspended sentences in order to pay restitution for the car's value. At the time, Woodward Fire Marshal Todd Finley said the motive was supposedly to teach her a lesson. Those were their words. As the search for Logan intensified, so did the investigation. FBI agent Ron Parrish interviewed Catherine. Parrish had more than 30 years of experience with the agency. He learned that Catherine was born in Columbus, Indiana on February 9, 1975. She was adopted in 1980. At the time of the FBI interview, she was legally married to a man named Brady Gogler. It wasn't her first marriage. There was Christopher Blanton, whom she married in 1993 and divorced in 1995, and Robert Tucker. Tucker was Logan's father. They divorced in 1996, shortly after Logan was born. She then married a man named Joe in 1997. Joe was Justin's father. To protect Justin's privacy, I'm not saying his last name. Catherine told Parrish that on June 21, 2002, while she was home, she received a phone call from her brother Brian. She told Parrish that Brian said he was coming to visit their biological mother in the Tulsa area. And she said it was about a 20-25 minute telephone call in the afternoon or middle of the day. And that uh, she explained to him that... Well, apparently he lectured her about not visiting her mother and other people and stuff like this. Catherine told Paris she didn't get a callback number for her brother. She explained that Brian might have found her location and phone number by contacting her adoptive parents. She continued with her story, telling Paris that she spoke with Brian again on the following day, June 22nd. Catherine told Paris that she had complained to Brian about Logan, and she was looking to place him in a boys' home or a mental health facility. Then, Catherine told Parrish, she asked Brian if he could take custody of Logan until she could find somewhere to place him. Catherine said Brian agreed to take Logan, and she gave him directions to her house. Finally, Catherine painted a richly detailed scene of what she said happened the last time she saw Logan. According to Catherine, on June 23, 2002, two weeks before the sheriff's office found out Logan was missing, Brian showed up around 11 a.m. or noon, and he showed up with a woman named Lori. Last name she didn't know, and a third person who was a white male she gave a general description of. She never learned his name, and they was there to pick up Logan. And he was driving a blue, dark blue Ford 
extended cab pickup with a third door. And uh, she had already packed his clothes uh, for him because she knew he was coming. And she packed the clothes in a blue or, I think it said, she said blue or black uh, backpack that had flowers or some floral design on it uh, that used to belong to her. The uh, Also, uh, she had put some shoes into a Walmart bag uh, for him to take because the uh, Brian and I think Lori was going camping uh, in Pennsylvania or Vermont and that they was going to be coming back on July 13th, 14th, or 15th, 2002. And she said he was wearing a burnt orange t-shirt with a pocket on the front left uh, chest that had a little uh, picture of a dinosaur like coming out of the pocket and a larger picture of a dinosaur on the back. He had on blue, blue jean shorts and black sandals which had lights when you walk either on the heel and possibly also on the sides and she explained that these were his favorite shoes or favorite sandals to wear. Catherine told Parrish that three or four days after they left, Brian called her and told her they were going camping the next day and Logan wanted to talk to her. So Brian put him on the phone and uh, apparently before she could get a callback number from Brian, Logan just hung up on him and called. It was another contradiction in Catherine's story. She had told the sheriff that she hadn't spoken with Logan since he left with Brian. I had found out that uh, she had told some people about DHS uh, had taken Logan. Parrish wasn't the only FBI agent on the case. Several agents had fanned out across the country, following leads. None of them located Logan. And Catherine wasn't the only person FBI agent Parrish was talking to. He was also talking to Logan's four-year-old brother, Justin, who had been in protective custody. Catherine had been allowed to visit with Justin. One day in early September of 2002, she was visiting with Justin and they were sitting in a car at a stoplight. Supervising the visit was a woman from DHS. As they sat at the stoplight, Justin looked out the window and said, Look, that's where Ron works. He was talking about an FBI office. Five days later, Catherine left Woodward and skipped her next visit with Justin. Less than three months after her son's highly publicized disappearance, she was gone. Catherine settled about four hours east, around Bartlesville, Oklahoma. That same month, she was arrested at a Bartlesville motel on a fugitive from justice complaint out of Clay County, Missouri, for passing bad checks. The charge was later dismissed. For the next three years, the town of Woodward would hear no more from Catherine. As I looked into this case, I found myself, like the people of Woodward, wondering where Logan was. And like Woodward, I thought about Justin, his little brother, and how his life turned out. He was four years old at the time Logan disappeared. I wondered how that kind of trauma affects a person's life. Justin would be about 20 years old. I wondered if he would talk to me. On a Friday afternoon, I tracked him down online. I sent him a private message and requested a phone interview. He responded within minutes. We set up an interview for the following week, 
again to help protect his privacy. I haven't said Justin's last name. He lives in another state now. I mean, I remember us, like, living in Oklahoma, us playing. I remember my mom and stepdad at the time, or her boyfriend or whatever he was. I remember going through a tornado at one point. Like, it's just little memories here and there. It's nothing, like, too significant. Little memories that, you know, pop up. And I've also, like, reflected on what if that was me instead of him and he was in the situation that I'm in now. He was a few years older than me, so... Honestly, I don't know. We're still... We were both young at the time that it happened, but he would probably be the same way I am now, having to grow up knowing it. He may have handled it better. He may have handled it worse. Who's to say? I asked Justin if he remembers the last time he saw Logan. He does. And what he told me was what he told FBI agent Parrish just before his mother left Woodward. I don't exactly remember, like, the time frame on that. Just that and then... On the next, over the next few days, that's when it was the car ride out into the country, and I was asking her, why is Logan so still and not moving in the car? And then we arrived at the destination, and that's when she pulled him out, told me to stay in the car, took him over a fence, and disappeared into the woods. But I still remember her telling me the words that there were snakes out there that would bite me and possibly kill me if I got out of the car. But I was roughly in the car for like six, seven hours because it was light outside when we first got there and it was nearly dark outside when she returned. I had water and food and stuff. Like she left me with that stuff. It was just windows were cracked. I know you shouldn't leave a kid in the car for any period of time though, especially being four years old. Not sure what to do couldn't go anywhere, fear of being lost, Did you fear of being abandoned, but you know, I even asked her, when she returned, I asked her, I go, where, where's Logan? And she goes, oh, he went to where the bad boys go, and if you ever do anything like he did, you'll end up in the same place. Looking for Logan Tucker is brought to you by The Oklahoman. Written by Josh Delaney. Produced by Paige Dillard, Dave Morris, and Phil O'Connor. Engineered by Todd Frazier and Greg Singleton. In the next episode of Looking for Logan Tucker, we meet the man who spent years searching for the blonde-haired, blue-eyed little boy who went missing from Woodward, Oklahoma in 2002. And we learn about the childhood experience that drove him to find out what really happened.